Good morning. It's good to be together today and uh, see each of you here. We appreciate those of you that are visiting with us. Invite you back when you can, anytime you can be here and thank Danny for the prayer on my behalf. And as always, we desire as teachers to teach something edifying and something that's relevant to us as we try to serve Christ better. And I pray that you'll be benefited by the study of the morning. Last time I taught, we began talking about some of the concepts in the book of James. And we studied uh, James chapter 1 around these verses that we read. And um, for anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he will look like. We talked about the idea of measuring our lives against the mirror of the scriptures and what that meant and how it meant action and not just being religious in word, but actually doing the things that he's asked us to do. In the book of James, we talked about also last time how it's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I think as we study the book, it's, that becomes more and more evident how there's just so much practical advice in the book of James. And as I thought back to what I taught about last time in chapter one and, and as I started moving into chapter two and looking at some of the things taught there, I really got to thinking about the idea of an authentic faith and how James really challenges us throughout this entire book to make sure our faith is, that, is an authentic faith. We all like things that are authentic. You know, when I was a kid, I, I really loved baseball cards. And baseball cards were much different back then. I heard, heard the other day that they're actually making a comeback. But when I was a kid, they, they were actually quite valuable. There were lots, I remember there was a publication that came out, Beckett Baseball Card Monthly. And every month I ran to the mailbox to pick that thing up and I flipped to the 1961 Mickey Mantle rookie card to see what its value was because it was always like 30,000 bucks or something in that range. And did it go up by how much? And that was kind of the measure for all other baseball cards. We like things that are authentic and that thing had value. It was rare and was original and it was old. And we like authentic things all throughout our lives. You, I, I think about as I collected cards, you would come across an autographed card every now and then where the player actually signed it. And somebody said, well, how do you know he actually signed that? Well, some of these companies would provide a certificate of authenticity that they got an arrangement with this player and he sat down and signed a hundred cards or whatever. And they gave you a certificate that they were guaranteeing that and certifying that they saw that process happen. And it was legitimately him that signed it, not some loser in a corner signing cards and trying to cash in on it. We like things that are authentic. You think about artwork and collectibles and jewelry, watches, you know. You hear about a Rolex. Somebody spends a couple thousand bucks on a Rolex, but you can buy one on the corner in New York City for 15. But it's not authentic, and nobody wants that. We like things to be authentic. And God likes for our faith to be authentic. And I think that's an underlying thing that James is challenging us with all throughout this book, but especially here in chapter 2. I was talking to one of the dads here over lunch one day, and he was telling a story about they were having some guests over, and one of the kids was upstairs playing games or something, and uh, the evening kind of carried on and went on, and kiddo ran downstairs at one point and said, they're still here? And he was telling us, you know, he had to kind of lecture him, hey, we don't, you know, you don't always have to say everything you think, and, and you know, we, we had guests here, and I was like, so really what we're telling him is don't be authentic, because that's how you really felt. And don't be that way. We like authentic things. Sure, we need to be guarded in our speech and stuff, but we respect the honesty that kids have, right? That say what they're thinking. You don't, get a, you don't get a picture of something that they're not really. We like things to be authentic. 
How authentic is your faith? Think about that this morning as we talk about some of these topics here in James chapter 2. Beginning at the start of the chapter, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one that wears the fine clothing and say, you, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you, then, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he starts off in this chapter talking about this idea of showing partiality, and he lays out this example of somebody that might come in the church as a visitor. And they may come in dressed as what we perceive as nice, or he talks about a gold ring or fine clothes, whatever, right? As we as a society identify what that may be. And we treat that person a certain way. But then if somebody comes in off, off the street that has an appearance of a beggar or a homeless person, and you can tell they're not clean or well-kept, and we're, we tell them, why don't you have a seat at the back? He says, are you becoming a judge with partiality? And it's such an easy example and an easy scenario for us to understand, but think about the times in our lives where we apply that. Sometimes it's not such a wide difference, right? Sometimes it's a little, it's a little closer. Do we treat people different based on that? Are we partial to people because of those certain things? I read a story about uh, studying for this about Mahatma Gandhi, the, the Indian leader and about some things that occurred in his life that he talked about at one point, he actually considered converting to Christianity. He had seen Christian missionaries setting up churches in India and the way that some of them behaved, and he read the, he read the Gospels, and they, they appealed to him. He, he, was, he was struck by what the message was in the Gospels. And so one Sunday morning, he decided he was going to visit an, a Christian church, and so he showed up at that Christian church for worship, and at the they met him at the door and told him to go worship with his own people, that he didn't belong there. And he said, why is Christianity any different? You know, as a Hindu, we have a caste system. I was looking for something different in Christianity, and if I perceive that there, what incentive is there for me to explore this any further? And it's such a sad story, and it, but it's an example that I think we see, maybe not with quite such you know, stark reality, but we see that a lot in our society. And I think when we encounter this kind of partiality, the challenge with that is it makes us the judge, right? It, we become the judge in these scenarios. Who are we to say that somebody, because of their clothing, is any better or not as good because of their clothing? It's something that he really challenges us with here. We should leave that to God. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 3 says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. When we talk about this idea of partiality, I think the critical factor is exactly what he says here. We have to view ourselves in the right light before we can think about others in the right light. He said, don't think of yourself any better than you ought to think. And I think that's really the underlying thing most of the time when we're judgmental of other people it's because we're using ourselves as a standard or what we perceive as good as a standard and not using God's standard in that. We gotta get our mindset right about ourselves. And I think this, this thought process is a good sanity check for us in all areas of our life, really. Are we really comparing ourselves to others or others to ourselves and using that as the standard and the measuring tool for that? He said, be sober in your judgment. 
And I think if we'll always reflect on that, we'll think about that and be a little better. In our chapter, he goes on to say, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So he kind of points out a, this, something that really is an obvious fact to us. You know, he says, you know, if you treat this guy that comes in the nice clothes this way and you're going out, going out of your way to impress them, they're the ones that cause all the problems in your life anyway. And you think about society and how much that actually bears out in our society, people in power and with lots of money. We, we want to impress them so much and we do all these things to impress them. We don't even like them half the time. And they're the ones that make all these laws and rules that cause us problems and create tax situations that we got to deal with. And we just want to live our life. It says God chose the poor of the world to be rich in faith. They're the ones that appeal to. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 6, Jason's studying the book of Galatians. I think he read this the other day. It says, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Think about Paul, all the interactions Paul had with the government and the, being in jail and going in front of these important people. Those people just caused him problems. They just added to his problems. He said, they didn't, they didn't add anything to me. He recognized the partiality and he called it out. God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter to him. Galatians chapter three and verse number 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is how the Christians should view other people and think about partiality. And this is what should guide us. We should understand that there's no distinction. It doesn't matter where we came from faith-wise. It doesn't matter if we're a guy or a girl. It doesn't matter if we're black or white. None of that matters. In Christ, it's all the same. I saw, doing some research in this, I saw um, a woman had made a statement. She was, had a blog post or something along, along the ideas of this teaching in James chapter two, and she said, one of the, one of the real, real challenges for us is we run that risk in our society today of allowing all of these social structures to impact our morality. And think about how true that is. We let society define who's an important person and why they're important, and who's a good person and why they're good, and who's evil and who's right and who's wrong. Society dictates all these things. And I think maybe even more so in a, in a place like America where we're, we have such tremendous freedoms that we don't think about God's standard enough. We let society dictate that too much. All these things that society categorizes and separates and wants to cause division and distinction amongst people, that all disappears in the church, or it should. It should all disappear. And you think about our congregation alone, how many different backgrounds there are and vocations and stories of people coming to the church and how that happened and when it happened in their life and the different impacts it makes on people. But we have a common bond here. There shouldn't be any partiality. And we shouldn't let our society certainly guide our morals and our values in that. Let's guard against that. 
In Matthew chapter 22, we read the great commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commands, commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I want you to remember the gravity of loving your neighbor. He says on all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And I don't know if we talk about that enough. Everything that we talk about in our faith hangs on these two things, loving God and how we treat other people. And I bring that up because James references this in the next section. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. One of the key tenets of Christianity is that it isn't about us. And that's something that's very hard for us to come to terms with in a society where it's all about me. Selfish behavior is rewarded and desired by most people. And we understand that. And I think people understand that in order to come to Christianity. But the problem is society keeps kind of dragging us back to it. It drags us back to thinking about me and what I can do for myself and how I can be better. And then we go months and months and months and we haven't thought about other people or we treat people differently, or we start to think about things in a partial way. And James, you know, this, this, this James chapter two, this chapter of James is a chapter that's, you know, fairly controversial from the standpoint of faith and works. And some of these, we're going to talk about these things in a minute as well, but there's nothing contradictory if you read this in context. And if you marry it up with the other scriptures, there's nothing contradictory in all this. You know, the partiality, how we treat people, loving your neighbor, doing all these things. He's wanting us to be authentic in our faith. What good does it do us if we say we're, we're a Christian, but if we distinguish between Jew or Gentile, or we distinguish between man or woman or black or white or whatever it is, what good does it do? He's asking us to be authentic in our faith. He goes on to say, for whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit Adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he said, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever commands you want to look at in the law, you know, this partiality, it, when we become the judge, that's the problem with it, is that we've all got faults. So if I say, don't go commit adultery, but if I go kill somebody, it doesn't matter. If I say, don't kill somebody, but I cheat on my wife, it doesn't matter. I've still convicted. I've still transgressed the law. And so he introduces the idea of mercy and mercy over judgment. When we love our neighbor as ourselves, and when we prefer others, and when we treat other people that way, we think about mercy. And it allows us to be merciful in that way. We're much less selfish. There's a there's also a key difference in judgment and being judgmental. Judgment is something that's necessary. We're called to, to judgment. We're called to think about sin and what it does in our lives. We're called to call other people out on sin when necessary. But what we're not called to do is say, I'm less of a sinner than Danny. That's not my job. And that's what partiality does. If I say to the guy in the rags, you gotta sit at the back because you're filthy and you stink and it's embarrassing if you sit on the front row. That's making me the judge, and that's sinful. Think about the example of Jesus and how he handled the woman caught in adultery. Remember that? We use it for, to 
illustrate so many points that we make in lessons. But that's really a perfect example of mercy over judgment. Was there, was there a ride in that scenario for that woman to be stoned? Yeah, according to the law. Jesus challenged him on that. He showed mercy to her in that. He didn't condone the sin, but he was merciful in that situation. Let's remember that, that mercy triumphs over judgment in how we deal with other people. And let's remember that how we deal with other people and how, you know, when we come in contact with them, think about that, not being partial to that. So that leads to a really important question that James asked in verse number 14 where he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now remember, he asked this question in the context of this whole discussion on being partial to people. So he, you know, he lectures on this whole idea of how we treat other people. Don't be partial to people. Mercy over judgment. Fulfilling the royal law of loving, loving your neighbor as yourself. So what good is it if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? That really is a powerful question to consider. If, if I say that I have faith and I don't have works to support that, can that faith save me? How do they work together? Do they have to work together? You know, that's a pretty significant conversation in the Christian community about faith and works and their, their role together. It's the very question that he addresses here. In Ephesians chapter two, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this because this is where a lot of the conflict or at least the perceived conflict comes in. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. So do, those, do these two ideas conflict? The idea that being saved is through faith, that's clear. That's a clear statement. It's clearly taught in the Bible. It's clear that I can do nothing of my own accord to earn salvation. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing I can say or boast of to say I earn my salvation, and there's nothing that you can either. And he's clear on that. Interestingly enough, we don't ever read verse 10, or people making the argument that works are irrelevant don't read verse 10, I should say. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The ironic part of that whole conversation is people that go to the verse eight and nine to say that works don't matter, miss the entire point. He said, that's the entire reason you were saved. That's the entire reason you were added to Christ was to do good works, to go help people, to not be partial to people, to love your neighbor as yourself. It was the entire reason. And it's so mind boggling that this is, this is such a controversy to me. It's inarguable. It's inarguable that faith is what saves us. It's inarguable that it's not good works that saves us, but it's, not, it's also inarguable that good works matter. He says it's the reason you became a Christian was to go do good works because of that. And so James then goes on to address this with some examples. In verse number 15, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they, that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if does not have works, is dead. When I first started studying this, I, I was originally gonna break up the first part of the chapter and then the second part, starting with the discussion on works into two different lessons because I was reading through the whole partiality thing and I was kind of like, why does he switch to works at that point? I, it wasn't clicking for me. And then at one point reading through this, it, it kind of clicked that 
He's talking about the works being how we treat the other people. Not being partial, showing them love, loving your neighbors yourself. It builds our faith. It builds our faith into a faith that works. And I think it's directly related. As we, view our, as we start to view less of ourselves and esteem others greater, not showing partiality to others, it produces a faith that becomes a working faith. We recognize that somebody might need help. We recognize that it's not just filthy rags and stinky homeless person sitting on the back row, but it's somebody that might could actually use some help. And he poses a question that seems ridiculous. You know, if we see that person and we know they're hungry or they need clothes or whatever, and we say, God bless you, I hope that works out for you. What good has it done? But if we set a warm meal in front of them and put a coat on their backs, that's a faith that is working. And it seems so ridiculous, but that's how we behave many times. Let's be authentic in our faith. Let's let people see that what we're doing is a product of that. And I think his example is perfect here. You think about the good Samaritan, you know, and how the people walk by and pass him and think about the Samaritan. I mean, if he stopped and said, oh, you, you really are beat within an inch of your life and you look like you could use some help, God bless you. You know, it just, it doesn't work that way. You know, we say, we say I'm gonna pray for you, but do we do anything about it? You know, there's situations we can't do anything about. I was sick to my stomach when I read that email about Jacob McCorkle last night. There's not much I can do about that. Prayer is probably a good thing. But if I see a guy laying on the ground, if I came upon that wreck and saw him and I said, you know, God help you, I hope you're all right, and I don't call an ambulance or pick him up and take him to the doctor, what good does it do? Good works certainly matter. And he says a non-working faith isn't a faith at all. Faith with Faith that does not have works is dead. I don't know how it's any clearer. You know, the, the responsibility and the accountability that's expected of us. He goes on to say, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So he said, you know, somebody says, look, I've got faith, but works don't matter. Or even the other scenario of that, we don't say that as much because it feels like we're defending the first scenario. But hey, that, that guy's a really great guy. He does all these great things for all these people. He helps out, you know, all these charities. You know, you hear that about athletes and politicians or whatever, right? That's not any better without the faith part. The faith requires the works and the works require the faith. Now, I would argue that most of the time the works are a product of the faith. You know, certainly people do good things in this life and don't claim to be a believer, but they go hand in hand. They're married together. You gotta have both. And I think many times people use faith, obviously, interchangeably with belief. And hopefully we've demonstrated that, that's, that there's a difference there. And I hope you've seen that this morning, that faith is not just belief. And that's a popular idea in the Christian community, that, that, that it ends at, at belief. And, it's, and, it, and those aren't interchangeable terms. Faith is not an empty, connect, uh, empty confession. It's not just something you can say. I, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. That confession's important, but it doesn't stop there. If it stops there, it's a dead faith. And he calls it useless here. He calls it dead in the previous passage, and he calls it useless here. 
And those are challenging words for us to hear. Even as Christians, those should challenge us regularly. And as we think about being authentic in our faith, we should challenge ourselves with that. How working is our faith? And you think back to chapter one, looking in the mirror. You know, the man that looks in the mirror and goes and forgets what kind of man he is, it's like a man that's a hearer of the word and not a doer as well. And he marries all these things together, faith and works. And he's really explicit about it here. I think, as I think about the idea of people having such a hard time with what it means to produce good works, the only thing I can rationalize that with in my mind is that it's either selfishness, they don't want to give of their time and talents and money and all those things, or it's to cover a sinful behavior that they want to be able to continue in. I can't rationalize any other way to think why you would argue that works are useless. And I think many times when people say that, it's because they want all the benefits or their perceived benefits of being a Christian, but they don't want to leave behind all the other stuff. And so they argue that works are useless. Let's don't be like that. Let's understand that. Let's care about people. And let's let our actions reflect that. You know, when I think, I think one of the most significant hindrances of the church is this very thing, people that claim to have faith but then don't have works that support that faith. And we call that hypocrisy, right? Or it's, that's one definition that fits in my mind. And I think it's one of the most important factors that hinders church growth and hinders conversations with people because they look at somebody else and say, well, what's different? You know, think about Gandhi. What's different? These Christians say they have faith, but they kick me out at the door just like the Hindus would if I don't have the right family or the right amount of money. I can have my caste system where I'm at. Verse number 22, you see that faith was active. This is referencing again Abraham. So he said, you know, was, was not Abraham justified by his works? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You think about that story of Abraham when he offered Isaac, was asked to take Isaac up on the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. It says he would, that faith was completed because of his works. He followed through on something. His works reflected that he believed God, that he trusted in God. And it says that's what completed his faith. And so they work hand in hand. I saw a statement that somebody said that faith is like calories. You can't see a calorie, but you can see the results of them, right? I eat enough calories and I pack on some weight. You can see the results of faith. It's not, it's not something that's empty. The results of faith are good works and you can see that. And so we can, tell when our, we can tell when our faith is right. We can tell when our faith is trending in the right direction by looking at our works, by looking at the things that we're producing in our life. It's not for me to look at Jason and say, you know, his works aren't good enough. His faith is sorry. That's what he's talking about with the judgmental part. But we should reflect on our own lives in that. Certainly talk to people about the role of works in that. There was a man named Charles Swindle that had a quote that I saw researching as well. He said, if you believe like you should, then why do you behave like you shouldn't? And I think that's really this whole faith versus works argument. 
Yeah, I believe, but my behavior doesn't show it. If you say you believe like you know you should, then why don't you behave like you know you should as well? And I think this whole section of scriptures and this whole teaching is saying that a genuine faith results in genuine works. And I don't know how it could be any clearer. It's something that we should really reflect on. And I think that's one of the real benefits of the book of James as he talks about some of these things. It's just really clear and concise. It's not cryptic. It's easy for everybody to understand. And it's very practical in every one of our lives, the things that we should be doing. And I think one of the other things that I wanted to mention too, as we think about faith and works, I think a lot of times that we, and I know growing up, I kind of had this view of, of Christianity, but I think we flip the order of how those things work a lot of the times. And I think many people that look at Christianity view it that way too, that, okay, I'm gonna go do all these good things and hopefully at the end of the, at the, end of the line, I've earned or receive the reward at that point. When we should behave the opposite of that, when we should say, look, I know it's a free gift. I know it's not works that I've done. I know it's a gift of God. And because of that, I'm gonna go do these things that he's asked me to do. I want other people to know about it. I want other people to be able to look at my life and say something's different about that. I had a boss one time that had a, was sort of, he wasn't quite atheist, but he was sort of agnostic or somewhere kind of in between those lines. And that's what he said to me one time. He said, I just have a hard time with this idea that you go do all these good things and maybe you get there at the end. And I said, it, it, if that's the case, there's no hope. It's not gonna happen for any of us. I certainly can speak for myself, but it's not gonna happen for any of us. So let's understand that we're saved by faith through God's grace. And because of that, let's go do the things that he asked us to do. Our faith should be a working faith. And I think we get the order of that backwards sometime. As we close this morning, there's a passage in Titus that I think really kind of summarizes this whole discussion really well. And I wanted to read this as we're closing. He says in Titus chapter three and verse number three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, many times I think we think that James is sort of the whipping stick for this discussion about faith and good works. It's all over the place. It's in all these passages. It's not just James contradicting everything Paul said through his ministry. It's everywhere. And all these things we received and the grace of God and the mercy and all the things that we talked about so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's our responsibility and it's a challenge for us to go do that. And I think he summarized it really well here. Genuine faith is not indifferent about action. It's involved. It's involved in the action and it produces action. Genuine faith doesn't stand on its own. You know, a lot of people want to behave that way where they say, you know, 
that belief's enough. And then, you, you know, as they measure their lives, what are they doing? You know, they wanna continue in sin. They wanna keep a foot in the world. They wanna do all those things that they've continued to do. And you don't even know that it's different since they've become a Christian. And genuine faith certainly is not invisible. And I hope that we've demonstrated that this morning. How authentic is your faith this morning? I hope that the study has benefited you in some way. And certainly every time I look at this book, it challenges me to make changes in my life and make improvements in my life. And I think it's just such a practical book and I'm enjoying studying it and hope that these studies benefit, benefit you as well. As we, close, as we close, we want to offer an invitation and I want to challenge you to think about the authenticity of your faith. You know, we talked about using the, the lens of the scriptures as a mirror in our lives and I'm going to continue to challenge that as we talk about this book over the next couple of studies. Continue to use the, the lens of the scriptures as a mirror in your lives and challenge yourself on these things and think about how authentic you are in your faith. Think about how you're treating other people that's, he, he laid out that huge example for us to talk about faith and good works. That's a good place to start. How are we interacting with other people? How do we view other people? Do we make distinctions because of some random social norms? Or do, are we inviting? Are we challenging ourselves to help people and care about them and loving our neighbor? If you have any need that the church can help with this morning, we invite you to come and have a seat on the front as we stand and sing the songs.